You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Marriage is hard, right? And it's, it's even harder just with the typical issues of life. A spouse maybe that is sick, uh, somebody that has lost their job or has mental health issues. There's so many different problems that can come up. Uh, So am I just supposed to stick it out and stay with somebody that doesn't get me? I hear that all the time. And I don't know. But what will you become? And if you do stick it out... And what will you become if you don't? I, I think our assumption is, well, my life would be so much better without it. But many times I think my my wife's differences, her challenges and her tendencies force me to become a better person. They force me to become the change. And I understand that that doesn't always bring happiness today, but it brings change, growth over time. So maybe there is a benefit to sticking in it a little longer, and there would be even a greater benefit if my partner would get the fact, too, that they need to change, right? I mean, I have clients that have been living in a one-sided marriage for years, and their spouse does not seem to get it. They think, ah, she's lucky. I am the greatest man in the world. And so I sit there and I worry because a guy says, no, seriously, you are so lucky to have me. (laughs) Yeah. It may not. There's a little video of a marriage fight. Uh, It may not. it, It may not be what you think it is. And you can keep blowing smoke that you're just a saint. But the reality is everyone's got issues. And if if we can't get real with each other, then we're probably going to have to, we're going to become something a lot less than we can become as humans. We're going to fall apart. So there are maybe some ways to motivate your spouse. You don't have to cross the line. You don't have to use ultimatums. Um, You don't have to beat them up if you need to see some change. But one of the things you might want to do is, is find a way to feel love for your partner before you bring up an issue. Most of the time I've found that when we're bringing up our issues with our spouse, we're not bringing up the issue out of love. And why this is so critical is because if I'm feeling anger, if I'm feeling frustrated, if I feel like you're taking advantage of me, then I will approach the conversation through that paradigm, through that way of thinking. And when I do that, my tone's going to be totally off. If I have compassion for my partner who maybe doesn't know how to communicate very well, and I feel love, and I feel an appreciation for them, if I can feel that when I go into the conversation, it might help me actually position our discussion better versus if I'm going into the discussion out of judgment. So be careful. Watch out for how you approach and the tone you approach with. Also make sure that you find the um, on switch that's inside your partner. We need to get into people deeply first and find out what does motivate them? 
There are things that motivate your partner, and there are things that motivate your partner to be a better partner to you. You've seen it at times. So go in and actually pay attention to what they are telling you that, that is a driver. Pay attention to when they are happiest and most connected to you, right? It might be when you're sitting on the couch watching a football game, even though you hate football, but you notice they're so much more into you, or they're not into you, but they're at least connected in a way, their way. We got to remember the on switch might be on in inside our partners. We need to go find it in there. Just a couple of ideas, folks, to help you uh, motivate your partner. Find the good. Let's do it. Let's work better on our marriages, guys. Pick it up. Do your part. Come on. It's all we got. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Life seems kind of stressful, doesn't it? Now it's summer, so sometimes that relieves some of the stress. Maybe you'll be taking a vacation. But I wanted to give you some some ideas, some tools to de-stress your life a little bit. And I got uh, some of these from Fortune Magazine, 15 Things to Do When You're Feeling Stressed, uh, a great article that was out on June 8th. And, you know, we, we need it. We need to find a way to de-stress if we can. Uh, but one of the ways, the fastest ways that, you know, you may not be thinking about is to increase – to decrease stress, you need to increase your endorphin production. And one of the quickest and surest ways to, to, do, uh, to do that is, you know, just get to the gym. Take a walk. Uh, anything that releases endorphins. Because uh, with endorphin releases, there's the, the, that good feeling, that positive feeling in your body. So anything take a walk today and and maybe just because the news is tense and you got a lot of people that'll be talking about it maybe at work take a break get out don't just sit around the water cooler and and keep talking about it instead get up go for a walk even if you just walk around your building or um just walk around your wherever you are at home so positive tool just get some exercise in you just simple stuff not you don't have to sweat it out but Something simple. Also, um, maybe a good day today, too, to watch what you're eating. Uh, if you want to decrease your stress, obviously, you might want to watch and, and minimize your um, your caffeine intake, but also watching out for the food you eat. And we've talked about it with uh, our great Ron Hager. He's telling us all the time, eat whole foods. Don't drink your, don't drink your sugars. Um, create a... a Create a space for yourself. Uh, one thing I've done recently at my own house, I'm writing a, a new book, and I just try to get away. I go to my office, sit down there, and just escape and find a space where I can meditate. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at that. I also have to learn to say no. That's something I'm not great at. We've had on the show just recently some tools on how to say no. So you just go look back in our archives on iTunes or on TuneIn, and you can see a complete interview or two within the last two weeks about learning to say no. Also, um, make a list of your goals, and when you accomplish a goal or even a part of a goal that you're trying to work on, check it off. That also creates a little endorphin, a little dopamine push for you as well. Um, another way to de-stress would be get lost in a great book. When was the last time you read a book, especially a great book? Um, possibly another opportunity for you is to 
talked to other people, and uh, they're calling them mastermind groups, but now more and more people have these groups where they can go share their ideas of what they're doing in their business. It's kind of people that are in similar fields as you. If you're a leader, they might be leaders. Um, If you're a manager, you might have management groups you can go talk to. But get out and talk to other people. I also suggest you leave the office. Get out of the office. Get out of your space. Try to get more sleep. Serve someone. All tools to help you uh, take your life back and hopefully de-stress. So what we're trying to do on the show, help you live longer and get through these tougher days where the news isn't so pretty. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone or maybe a softness of tone, which, which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's it's just tone. And it's something we don't always pay attention to. But in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner, talking about our tone, and um, it's it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's uh, tone more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone. Right, tone. Remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben. They're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like, Kaylee yeah. and I will talk like that and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay, but her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Can you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people, some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today. Because tone, it's, it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that, you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not, but, you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it. But tone does communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and and either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone. Okay, five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay. Tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. This one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you notice the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there's certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get, you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back. More fun. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, more than 86% of young adults say that making decisions in line with their purpose is what makes them an adult. But only 43% say that they have a clear picture of what they actually want in life. So how can millennials coming into their adulthood find their purpose and find a path that fulfills that purpose? Here to show us the way to do that and to answer some of these interesting questions is Kristen we- Christine Wheeland. Whelan. She is a, uh, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's been on the show before and is the author of the book, The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life. Dr. Christine Whelan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Great to have you. And uh, this topic seriously interests me because I always felt like I was kind of uh, drawn to my purpose. I always kind of felt like I knew what it was. I didn't know every detail of it, but I had a good picture of what I wanted my life to work like. But I noticed that that's not for everybody. A lot, Most people, in fact, probably don't have that sense. That's right. And so when I'm talking to young adults in particular, I talk about the idea of a purpose mindset. So rather than coming up with a singular purpose, think about the, the purpose mindset, meaning First of all, what do you care about? What are your values? What are you good at? And how can you use the things that you're good at in keeping with your values to impact the people that you care about? Mm. And that kind of gets you into a purpose mindset. And you can live it in various different ways at various different times. And then, you know, probably when you're in your 30s or 40s, maybe you look back and say, aha, I see the thread that was going through all of that. And maybe then you're able to more uh, clearly articulate a more singular purpose. Mm. But really getting in that purpose mindset from the start in your teens and 20s will get you on a path to a really meaningful, thriving life. So when you say the purpose mindset, that, that could just be almost situational, right? Or I guess de- dependent on my stage, my this year of school, this year of or this, these few months of summer. However, your values and, um, and your strengths and your values are something that are going to be pretty consistent over time. Right. So when I, when I test this with my students, and I tested this workbook with more than 600 of my students over four years, and one of the, the big comments that they made was, gosh, nobody has ever asked me what I value. Nobody's ever given me the space to think about it in terms of, of my beliefs, not my parents' beliefs, not my pastor's beliefs, but my beliefs. What, what am I passionate about? And for all the parents and educators out there, there's really good news, which is that when you ask young people what they are, are, are passionate about, what they value, you will be really heartened by their responses. I certainly have been over the years doing this with so many students. So they, they, they tend to parallel. Values. Yeah, they parallel yes. their parents. Indeed, they have wonderful values, but when they state them themselves, that helps them own those values and really live them out in the world. Mm. And and the values, um, do you, do you differentiate? So, I mean, the, the values, I guess, could be. Do you like throw a list of values and choose the ones you like, or are these people just naming their own values? Well, so I do. There's a um, there's a, a researcher, Professor Schwartz, who uh, has done this uh, worldwide research on universal values. And so we do. I, in the book, I do offer the universal values list, Schwartz's values list. However, uh, if people want to add to it or or um, edit it to really better fit them, I encourage that. The one thing that I don't want is for somebody to say, "Well, my value is to be happy," because yeah. that's not a value. 
that is a feeling that you'd like to feel, but actually happiness is a little bit more complex, right? There's, there's uh, as Aristotle would say, there's hedonic happiness. There's happiness in the moment and happiness that feels good. And then there's eudaimonic happiness. There's long-term thriving. And when we talk about purpose and meaning and values, we're really talking about that long-term thriving, which is a kind of bigger and other-focused happiness. So that's why it's important also to think about who you want to impact. Yeah, and is um, so you've been doing this as a as an academic with your students, and um, what do you see happens to them? So for the forty three percent that maybe don't even have any connection to what their value system or a clear picture, what happens to them as, as they start to go through this process? As, uh, as as we tell our children, you know, I, that uh, when they when they find what they are called to do, it's like an egg inside them that cracks open and opens up. Yeah. And so I sort of think about this with my college students as well. It's like a part of them opens up, and they um, and they they take ownership of their uh, of their adult lives and of their future. And it's so heartening for me to see because you know they, they would probably find that on their own at some point, but just think of all of the decisions that they may have made in error before then. So if you think about this early on in your 20s, you're really setting up a foundation for success. Also, it prevents you from making a big mistake that I made, which is the mixing up of goals and purpose. And so Often we tell kids, you know, you've got to get a good grade on the SATs or ACTs, you've got to get a good score, and you've got to get into a good school. But those are goals. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is not to graduate from college. That's one of your goals. It's a stepping stone along the way. And when I was doing my doctorate, I really kind of thought that my purpose was to get my Ph.D., and on the night that I got my Ph.D., I was Dr. Wheel, and it was such, a, such an exciting event, or it should have been, but I went back to my room and I burst into tears because I was still me. I was still yeah. the same person. I still had all the same problems. I still didn't have a boyfriend. And yeah. I was but you did have same. debt. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I had a lot of student debt, though. Yeah, but isn't that it? Right. I had the same feeling where this is it? Right. And so the reason why we had that feeling was because we mixed up goals yeah. and purpose. Yeah. And if I had realized at the time that my that, that I had... I had had a, a big milestone. It was a step toward reaching my purpose, but that my greater purpose was, was something bigger, I, I would have probably been able to celebrate. And so I tell that story to my students often, and, uh, and I think that is another eye-opening experience to, to think about what are the stepping stones along the way, and then what, are, what is the larger why behind what they are doing. So is, help us understand then, um, is the passion understanding what my values are that I want to accomplish in this life, and that drives me to live a certain type of life that can really maybe be focused in any area, is that is that what generates the passion, is knowing the values that leads to the passion, or is it being even more specific and knowing where I'll use those values specifically in my life, like in the field of medicine or in the field of, you know, psychology or whatever? Yes, I, I think it is. It, it is trying to be as specific as possible while also knowing that life happens. Right. And another thing that I talk about is this wonderful theory called happenstance learning theory. And it basically is the theory behind that, that often quoted life happens. Yeah. Right? Which is that you, know, you can make a lot of plans, but 
there's sometimes a wrench thrown in there, or you don't get into that medical school program, or you know, right. Or, right. or another opportunity comes along, and then what do you do? And this is where having a purpose mindset is so important, because then you realize, okay, if perhaps I wanted to go to medical school, but, but maybe really what I want to do is help people and educate people in the field of medicine. Mm. And so could I do that in public health? Could I do that, um, you know, as, a, as, a, uh, as an educator? Can I do that? You know, where, where are the various ways that I might be called to do that? And having that purpose mindset really opens up many, many more doors and allows you to kind of go with the flow of, yeah. uh, of life as it, as it happens. And adapt. I talk about purpose as um, I have this, this quote that I really love these days. And when I say, I say with purpose, you have to, your why needs to be bigger than your butt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and what that means is your why, your purpose, your reason for doing something needs to be bigger than all of the excuses right. that come along the way. All those buts, but I can't do this, but I'm not smart enough, but I'm not this or that. Because once you, once you uh, know the why, you'll, you'll be able to, I guess, have the energy, the direction, the purpose, the foresight, the insight, the inspiration to, to kind of weave your way through what would be an excuse. Absolutely. And I want to say for anybody out there who is listening, saying, yeah, all this sounds great, but um, per- putting together a purpose is very daunting and scary. Um, I, ha- I had that thought too. Perhaps you have. The, uh, the, the one thing that I do in, in the book is I break it down into really small steps because there's a lot of research that shows that if you break things down into small, fun, user-friendly steps, then it boosts people's feeling of accomplishment along the way. And all of a sudden, you create kind of a Mad Libs purpose statement. You put all of these pieces together, and you have a draft of a purpose statement. It's not perfect by any stretch, but at least you've got really the building blocks of it, and then you can craft it, which is a much less daunting process than you know sitting there on a summer afternoon thinking, what is my purpose yeah. in life? I've got to get my purpose by noon. That's right. That's right. That that's a great way to look at it because you you really it almost has to appear right. So you need to like chip away some here, chip away over here, just slowly chip it away, and then all of a sudden it'll start to appear. Exactly, and then it uh, and 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 then it appears, and uh, and it very well may be something that you craft and grow and change over time. Hmm. Does it have to be written down? Well, the research is pretty compelling that if you write something down, you are much more likely to live it. You're much more likely to accomplish it. So one, um, one fun thing that I might recommend doing is for all of us who have smartphones, if, um, you know, there are all these great apps where you can create images out of quotes. Right, yeah, memes, yeah. Exactly. So if you, take, so if you come up, draft a purpose statement using this small steps approach, put it into a pretty quote, and make it the screensaver on your phone. So every time you open up your phone, you are reminded That's great. of this quote. And it's just something that, uh, that, it, that is in the back of your mind that it keeps, keeps with you. Then you may make some different and, uh, and, and more purpose-based decisions along the way. Yeah. Oh, that's – I mean, it, it, that's, that's easy. 
right? Yeah. And for some people, that's really easy. Um, but again, I think the process is going to be so helpful. And let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Christine Whelan, and she is the author of the book, The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life. We will take a break, come back, continue. And uh, we're going to ask Christine to give us some some steps, some some activities that we can do to start to chip away and find that purpose. That meaningful, uh, you know, dri- driving purpose that uh, that can guide our lives. So stick with us. We'll continue the exploration, hopefully, to help you find the good in you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What is your purpose in life? So if somebody came and stuck a microphone right in your face, asked you, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? Would you have a, Would you have an answer? And would your answer be something that you truly, deeply, profoundly believe in because you've thought it out? You've maybe even worked it out to the point that you've got it in this perfect sentence that motivates you, that drives you. Um. Or, I mean, at least are you on the way to knowing the answer? The the guest we're talking with today is Dr. Christine Whelan. She is a professor, a clinical professor in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is the author of the book, The Big Picture, A Guide to Finding Your Purpose in Life. And uh, she right now has been teaching us uh, and is going to continue to teach us about how to track that purpose down. Christine Whelan, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. How do we do it? How do I, what are some activities, some things that I can do or anybody really can sit down and do to start to figure out their big picture? All right. So the first thing, there sort of there's a three-step purpose statement that, um, that is the, probably the simplest way to really get started. Three questions. First of all, what are your talents? What are you good at? So if you list three of those, so if you list your three talents, then what do I care about? So list three values that you care about. And then think about the groups of people or the, the types of people or the causes that you are interested in impacting. Hmm. And then you put it together. With my talents, A, B, and C, I will live my values for X, Y, and Z by impacting these groups. Hmm. And and it is a, um, I mean, you can do this, and this is a 10-minute exercise. Done, 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 right, fast. Right, you could do this while you're, while you're riding a bike. Right. And you think about that, and certainly this is not the most poetic purpose statement, yeah. but it gets you a big chunk of the way toward thinking about what matters most to you. And, you know, the other realization that a lot of people will have while doing this exercise is, gosh, that is what matters to me, but that's not living right now. Hmm. And so one of the exercises that we do in, in the big picture, which um, folks say, gosh, are you really do, doing such a dark exercise? But I do what we call the tombstone exercise. Yeah. Where you sit down and you think about the epithet on your tombstone. What would you want to say? You know, Matt Townsend was a person who, fill in the blank. 
Yeah. And if you think about it that way, then you have this moment. You, you c- create something. And so one of the things that I was thinking that if you know you wanted to be pithy for me, I would say that Christine Whelan was a person who gave as much as she received. I've been given all sorts of blessings in my life, and I try to give equally out into the world. Yeah. And so if I say that, well then, okay, am I living that today? Did I live that yesterday? Am I, are my actions really in keeping with my professed purpose? And I don't know about you, but often I fall short. Right, no. We're not, it's, we're not doing it. No, we're not doing it. And you can think about, would your friends, would your family say that about you in eulogies at your funeral? And, you know, it, death is something that we don't talk and think about a lot, but really it is the, the finite nature of life gives us purpose here on earth, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and we are called to do wonderful things here on earth. And I really believe that all of us have a purpose, and uh, discovering it and living it helps us pass on our gifts so that it, they, they outlive our time here on earth. Yeah, it becomes our legacy, right? Indeed. There is a purpose writer, Barbara Bram, who says that it's no surprise that passion, uh, when people talk about pur- purpose, they often talk about passion. And she says, because passion, the word passion has the ideas of purpose in it. It's about passing the eye on. Pass the eye on. Wow. And that's what we do with purpose. But she says that that I in passion is lowercase because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about passing. It's not the, the Christine show. It's about passing those gifts through me to make the world a better place. And so purpose at its very nature is pro-social. And what that means is that it involves other people. And, uh, and, and so when, that's why part of that little three-step purpose statement, you think about what you're good at, your talents, you think about your values, and then you think about who you want to impact. What, what happens, and have you ever seen this, Christine, where somebody's going, it almost seems like this process is iterative, and then every version, even as you go through life, you might dig mm-hmm. deeper and deeper, mm-hmm. and the principles might grab deep, or the values might grab deeper into your life. Um, but what happens if you... <laughs> If you're doing the process at first and it's it's quite shallow, right? So yeah. what what you think your talents are at 18 may not be, you know, kind of your life talents that are going to carry it in 90. Or what sure. what what your values are at 18 or 19 aren't as deep as maybe they might be or as focused as they might be at 40 or maybe you're who you want to help is myself, me and I. <laughs> Uh, those are the three people I really most want to help. But so does does the process that they go through in your book, does it naturally kind of try to, does it elicit their best self? Yes. Yeah. So having the people that you want to impact as, you know, me and I, and, and, yeah. and that is, that, that, that's not part of purpose. Right. Because that is, because really purpose is pro-social, right? So right. It, is, it is outward focused and involves other people. So that's why when people say my purpose is to be happy, no, no, yeah, no. That's not your purpose. Hopefully you will be happy along the way, but also when you're living with purpose, you're going to have moments that aren't really very fun. You know, when you're working toward a goal, Sometimes you got to do some tough stuff. Right. But the reason why you do it 
is because you have the larger why in mind. Now, you know, this also, we also, when we talk about purpose, it all sounds very lofty, but we can bring it down to some pretty specific things, too. When you're thinking about a major, you can think about what your interests are and who you want to help and what you want to do with that degree. When you're thinking about what kind of job you want to take, you can think about the values of the company. You can think about what the company is producing or who you're interacting with. And as I tell my graduating seniors, a great way to ace a job interview is to really adapt that purpose statement in the interview. You would say, I'm going to use my talents for this, this, and that. Because I, to, uh, to really work with the company values of A, B, and C so that we can better impact these customers, these clients, make this change. And as an employer, wouldn't you be impressed? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> the mere fact you've thought it that? through, and, right? And then if you can, in your interviews, share, share how your purpose is tied to their purpose, wow. Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, your purpose changes over time. And this is something that, for me personally, uh, has, been, um, has been interesting. So I, uh, I now have a – she'll turn five tomorrow. Um, I have a five-year-old, an almost three-year-old, and an almost one-year-old. Hmm. And so my purpose, really, in the first part of my career, was very much focused on educating others and, um, and a big career. And now my primary purpose is around – certainly educating others, but also educating my children and having these conversations within my home, not only outside my home. Right. And so the, the, the core purpose of educating and translating research to be applicable into people's lives, that is still happening. It's just that right now the people that I most want to impact are these little people in my home. Yeah. Um, in addition to my students, certainly. But, you know, you can see how if these, 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 your impact groups change over time. And that's okay. That's I think that's ideal. Well, and actually, it's it's so empowering to your kids, too, because mom isn't – you're not just an employee somewhere, and you're not just – you know, you're not any one thing. You are this – you are a, a conglomerate of a bunch of talents and gifts focused on a purpose. What could be more valuable to help your kids find than their purpose, than their – you know, than their big picture? I hope so. You know, we do talk about that a lot around the house. I bet. It really is. It's the, and it seems like this is so pie in the sky, except the reality is the research backs it all, right? And so it's, this isn't just wishful thinking anymore. This is about actually identifying what makes you, in the end, it is what will make you happy. Yes, happy in that long-term, thriving, well-being exactly. sort of happiness. Yeah. Not, that, not necessarily just that in the moment. Happiness. Yeah, it won't always be pleasurable. It, That's right. Sometime, but it will, be, it will be where you're supposed to be. But hopefully it'll also be pretty fun along the way, too. Yeah, it'll have those little moments, won't it? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, again, it's, it, it's a process, right? And it's something that I, I, can, I can see some people that would worry more about making it perfect than just being connected to it. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing is you don't have to do this in a vacuum. It's wonderful to do a little draft and then share it with mentors. One of the chapters in my book is about your sort of supporting cast in creating the documentary of your life, the purpose-based documentary of your life. You don't do it alone. So find the people who are mentors to you, people who you want to be like when you grow up. And I still have a lot of people that I want to I say, I want to be like you when I yeah. grow up. We never finish growing up. And, uh, and, 
and then at, run it by them. Ask oh. them. Ask them what their purpose is. And, and, and talk about this. I mean, these are also things that you want to pray about if you're a person of faith. You know, you want to, you want to think about these and discern at every stage. Yeah. And find, and yeah, and connect it to all parts of your life and all, all people of your life. That's beautiful stuff. Uh, Dr. Christine Whelan, thank you so much for your insight and for being with us today. Well, thank you so much. And I just want to say for all of your young readers out there, if, um, if they are interested in joining the Big Picture Purpose Contest, we are giving out $500 to a, uh, for young adults to live their purpose. All they need to do is give us a picture and, a, and 250 words on their purpose and their ideas. And the, uh, oh, that's cool. tomorrow. Yeah, so, oh, it does close tomorrow. So do, just, do they go to the bigpicture.life? This month, yeah. So the bigpicture.life slash contest. Awesome. Good stuff. Appreciate it, Christine. Thank you so much for that. And uh, everybody go check it out at thebigpicture.life. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's hard. Vision. It's you got to have vision in your life, right? Because vision is going to tell you where you're going. You got to know where you are in relation to where you're going. And if you can figure that out, you're probably going to be able to keep moving along. You'll have progress in your life. So we found a story of a firefighter um, that had to free a man in China because he didn't quite have the right vision, right? He, he was a little off as to um, if, if he could fit inside of a washing machine or not. So a Chinese fire department uh, freed a man whose head became stuck inside a washing machine while he was attempting to repair the appliance. I mean, that happens. A lot of times you just get your head in there and then, you know, y- y- your body expands and then you're stuck, I guess. Yeah. Well, the fire department said in a post online that the man became trapped Sunday when he put his head inside the washing machine. He was trying to look, you know, to see what exactly needed to be repaired. And uh, the rescue took about 40 minutes for them to get the man's head out of <laughs> out of the uh, washer. Now... I feel bad for the guy because who doesn't get stuck somewhere, you know? So as we are known to do, we actually have a video of the press conference um, and we have a a, – we're going to have to translate it because the press conference is in Chinese and then we will translate it to English and you'll be able to hear what the firefighters were saying about this man. So – Let's uh, let's now go to the press conference. Okay, so stop that. And let's now. So we have a translator. We have a machine um, that called the. It's it's the Scottish translator, and we'll just let's just play uh, the translated version of what they're saying about this man's head. Look at the size of that boy's head. I'm not kidding, it's like an orange on a toothpick. Well, that's a huge noggin. 
It's a virtual planetoid. Has its own weather system. Wow. I, I think the press conference went on. Is there more? Should, should we play it a bit longer? Yeah, yeah play more. Yeah. He's pointing a lot to the guy's head. And he's holding up an orange and a toothpick. Okay, so there's more. Translate that part. I'm not kidding. That boy's head's like Sputnik. Spherical, but quite pointy in parts. He'll be crying himself to sleep tonight on his huge pillow. Hmm. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. It's kind of rude. That's like a mean firefighter. <laughs> that's crazy. Okay. Wow. That's some interview. Well, we got to go. I mean, that's just I feel bad for the guy now. And then to have an announcement like that, that's rough. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Your mind and uh, the impact it has on life. And when, I, when I'm coaching people in my... Um, practice, I, the mind really is one of the first big barriers that has to, has to be evaluated at least in order to create some movement, in order to create a change. Um, it's not just trying to teach them skills. I can teach couples to talk. I can get them communicating. I can get them to maybe hold off before they just blow up and listen to somebody. But there are certain thoughts that are constantly stewing in our lives or in our minds. And those thoughts may um, deeply impact what you do, what you feel. So my basic belief as a coach is that our thinking, whether it's conscious or subconscious thoughts, whether you're actually intentionally thinking about the thought or whether it's just some, some undercurrent belief that you have, it's going to generate feeling. Thoughts tend to generate feelings. Feelings tend to generate doing what you do, and doing tends to generate what you're becoming. And if what you're becoming doesn't jive with what you want to become, then you're going to be out of integrity, which will generate feeling, right, and thoughts. So the pattern goes, thinking, feeling, doing, becoming, over and over and over. So here's some thoughts that you want to make sure you, you don't have running through your operating system. And and just start questioning it, like, what made me go off right here? Why did I start to act this way? That's what I was doing, yelling, screaming, whatever, um, just pulling away, ignoring my family or my spouse. Why was I doing that? Go back to the feeling behind it. There was something I was feeling. By the way, motivation, for those that want to understand motivation, uh, motivation is the feeling that generates the doing, right? Um, so... That's there's power in understanding the uh, the feeling and the doing. 
there's also power, also maybe more power in understanding the thinking behind the feeling. Um, here's an example. Do you tend to have a thought that you don't have a choice in life? You don't have a choice. I've got to do it. Don't even have a choice. I mean, I don't even want to do it, but I've got to go do this job or I've got to go, you know, take my kids to here and this place and that place. So if that is the thought that's underlying it um, and the belief, it's going to generate a feeling. And the feeling is probably obligated, forced. It's going to be an uglier feeling if you don't have a choice to do something, which will then generate how you go do it. Think of how you do something you didn't want to do. So a kid that throws a tantrum up to an adult that, you know, ruins a trip that they didn't even want to go on, um, it, it's going to be acted out. So if you do you have a thought process that you're trapped, you don't want to do what you're doing. You don't want to be in the life you want to be you're in. You don't want to be in the marriage you, you're in. Another thought that a lot of people have is that life is easy or life should be easy. And then they're amazed every time it's not easy. So if that's the way that you if you have a belief that life should be easy, and yours isn't, then you then you obviously think I got to change my life. I got to change it. And you might feel misery, even though you got a pretty good life. It's just normal. It's hard. Another belief is um, that uh, the way it is now is the way it's always going to be. Right. So if it's bad now, some people believe it's just it's just that's your life. It's always going to be bad. Or do you believe, you know what? No, life's going to change. Just give it a couple of years. Give it a month. Give it a two. Give it a week. It's going to get better. Do you also believe that uh, everyone else has it better than you do? Right? There's people that believe everyone else just has it better than you do. Um, some people have a belief system that it's just too late, a value system, maybe something in their mind like it's too late. You know, it's too late to change my job. It's too late to become something that I want to become. Some call it just bad luck. You know, I just got bad luck. Bad luck. Everything I touch is just goes bad. Um, the, some some think of this optimist. You know, you know what? The situation it's it's going to get better. Some have that automatic you know reply. Some no no no. It's just going to be worse. But whatever your view is, it's yours. And if you, you're going to keep suffering the feelings that come from that thinking and you're going to keep suffering the doing or the lack of doing that come from those feelings and those thoughts. So when I coach somebody, I always ask them to go back and try to evaluate the thought or the, the thought, uh, the feeling, kind of the mood that drives you to keep doing what you're doing. And any time you spend looking at it is valuable. Trust me. Any time. You spend recognizing the thought that's preceding a lot of these feelings you have, the better off you're going to have. You're going to actually find a way to turn this around. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We talk about beauty um, and we talk about self-esteem, right? So we want to we want to have this belief in ourself, but uh, we got to be really clear what self we're talking about. Because when you think of you, you are not just... You, you are made up of a body, you're made up of a mind, you're made up of a spirit, you are made up of a bunch of different thoughts and paradigms and beliefs about who you are. So be really careful. Um, as you try to grow self-esteem, you, you got to focus somewhere. And my concern 
is that many people spend the majority of their time trying to build self-esteem, probably working on only one of the three components of self-esteem, which is the body. So your body, a great tool, right? A great source, brings you the chemistry, you know, it allows you to feel the pleasure and the pain of the world. You can rip, you can get those ripped abs like I've got, you know, buns of steel, muscles galore, rippling. Okay, don't be rude. And you you can have all of that going for you. You can be stronger than everyone else. You can be faster. You can uh, financially go make all the money you want to take care of your body and your body's needs. You can drive the nice car, something to put your body into. You can buy the best clothes. And interestingly, it won't necessarily make you feel better. It will for a while. But eventually, if you want true self-esteem, you're going to have to go deeper than the body, right? So eventually, you're going to want to – you're going to jump into your mind. And the mind is where you, you, know, you want to start you know, having some power. You want to be more popular. Do you want some of the things that are less tangible? Not a car necessarily, but you want prestige. You want popularity. You want people to like you. And you'll realize that your car is great, but it doesn't mean people actually like you. They might just use you. For your car, so as you move into your mind, you're gonna you're going to you're gonna like it. Your mind likes you know looking good. It likes being popular. It likes having you know maybe not even you're not even gonna sit there and like sit in your money and just play in all your money. That's the tangible stuff. But you just like knowing that you have more than others. So that becomes a mind game for you now. Now your mind is being satisfied because you're getting ahead supposedly in life. The problem with your mind, though, is um, you're never going to be good enough because eventually you're going to have a neighbor move in that will have more money than you. So your mind alone isn't where you're going to find self-esteem either. It's not going to be in your mind that you – because your mind's constantly going to be comparing you. And you're either going to have to be – Better or just worse than everywhere else, and your mind's going to kind of bifurcate it and make it an either or. So the true source of essence is always going to be in the spiritual side. Essence is your ability to have less and be okay with it. It's your ability to be present. Essence is that good feeling you feel when you are doing something that is noble and good that you love to be about. It's holding your grandchild. It's holding your child It's that silent night in the middle of the night when you're just rocking your baby back to sleep and you just feel peace. It's when you're serving. It's when you're out in nature. That's where your true sense of who you are comes from. It's usually in the quiet times we find ourselves. It's not in the loud, busy dance halls or bars that you're going to find your true identity. Super fun. But in the end, you got to be okay with yourself. you got to know what your purpose is. You've got to feel some connection to a higher power. Your true self, your true esteem is going to come from knowing that why you're here on this earth and what you're doing here and being connected to some bigger purpose. And I'd also say being connected to a higher power. And you can go determine what that higher power is. But if we're not connected to it, then what can you esteem? The highest power I've, or the highest esteem I have is knowing that. I'm a child of some of God, of something bigger than myself. That brings me more self-confidence than anything I could do or have or say. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We do. We watch these shows or these television news moments 
where we hear of a child in a car, or lately it's even been animals. Um, I mean, it's always been animals, but uh, now people are, these kids are dying, right? And apparently we are at a higher rate of deaths with children in cars this year than um, last year. We've already passed last year's totals of death of children in, in these in cars that were left in cars. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to focus on this topic. Also, I want you to notice that um, how quickly we are to judge and to be uh, so angry because of the innocence, right, of these these children. They didn't do anything. They didn't. They were innocent here. But one of the things to remember what uh, Dr. Diamond was teaching us there's very universal issues at play here, and you have memory and you have battling kind of dueling purposes in your memory. One memory is there to get you habitually to just keep doing the things you do, and another is, you know, the, the perspective memory to get you to, re, you know, don't forget this. But as for as mad as you are about somebody leaving um, – another parent leaving their child in the car and you can't explain that or understand it, how many times have you personally been driving down the road habitually in your habitual uh, memory and you don't even remember driving somewhere? You just got in the car and went to grandma's and put it on autopilot And just think about that lack of awareness, right? Think about what happens when you get in autopilot. Yeah, sure, you'll never forget your child in the car, but you will drive 75 kind of brainlessly and, and, you know, and be thinking of something else. So as quick as we are to all judge somebody that makes a mistake like that, and that's a – I'm not – I don't want to diminish that. That's an enormous mistake. And it is a mistake we can't make, but people do, and they will statistically, you know, millions of parents, they're going to make mistakes. Um, But your need to then crucify this person, your need to then diminish them, to beat them up, and to get online and make comments like you're informed, like you would never make a mistake like that. I promise you, if we followed you long enough, you have, you do, all the time. If you forget your phone somewhere, if you forget to pick a child up from something, if you, if you've, you're going to make a mistake. And that's the hard thing about being a human on this earth is we make mistakes and not all mistakes that we make are equal. Sometimes you make a mistake driving and you accidentally kill somebody and it ruins your life. And it's a mistake. It's a pure, simple mistake. So people make mistakes. Let's, let's just recognize that you're part of that group, right? You're not part of the deity and God that doesn't make the mistake. You're part of the group that makes mistakes. So be careful how you judge one another, right? Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, have you ever had a run-in with someone at the grocery store or at work, and after a confrontation, you ask yourself, wow, 
What made them so angry? Why, why are they all? Why are they always so mean? Why are they such a jerk? Have you ever thought that? Well, a study at Yale University by Dave Rand and Adam uh, Bear answers the question why some people are jerks, yet others are nice even to strangers. And uh, we just happened to have Dr. Dave Rand on the phone with us today to talk about this study. Dave Rand is an associate professor of psychology, economics, and management at Yale University and is here to, to walk us through his research. Dr. Rand, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This is an interesting study. Um, we've Because this is kind of a, a blend, it sounds like, between... Um, a, a few different theories, kind of, kind of marketing or, or economic theories, right? Is that, is that because this is based in the numbers? This isn't just social science, right? Right. It's, uh, I mean, it's it's game theory, basically. Game theory, the yeah. Game theory is um, social interaction, which is what we like to study, are very complicated, um, which is a lot of what makes them interesting, but also it makes it hard to study them. And so, the idea of game theory is to take these complicated social interactions and distill them down to the sort of core components of, uh, you know, what, what's the important essence of the interactions, and then describe them with numbers. And then once you have it uh, sort of described that way, you can do sort of mathematical analyses, which is part of what we did, and you can also do laboratory experiments where you have people actually make decisions about how to split money up uh, between themselves and others in ways that capture these core ideas from these games. So, because in games theory, um, it really is, we're doing things naturally in our social life, in our relationships, just as I interact with somebody at a store. I'm going to do kind of what comes naturally to me. But what I guess you're finding out, though, is there there is kind of a games theory approach to why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, so, so it, game theory gives us a language to, uh, to think about uh, these kinds of social interactions, like what happens at the grocery store, um, in, a, in a clear way. So, for example, the game that is the most famous game of game theory, and that's sort of central to all the stuff that I do, is called The Prisoner's Dilemma. Um, and that's for sort of historical reasons. I don't care so much about the actual story of the prisoners in the dilemma, but the idea of this game is that two people simultaneously make a choice. They can either be selfish and keep some money for themselves, or they can be generous and give it to the other person, in which case it'll get doubled. Hmm. And so this very simple game, just each person choosing, are they going to cooperate with the other person and, and you know give them the money, or are they going to be uh, selfish and keep it for themselves? That captures the core idea of, so much of our social interactions where there's the tension between what's best for you individually and what's best for everyone as a whole. Because if both people, uh, you know, say people, they have $10. So if they keep the $10, they get $10. If they cooperate, then they give it up and the other person gets $20. Hmm. What happens so if what they both means? fight trying to keep it? Right. They so get the, less. The, 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 but yeah, exactly. That's right. the sort of beauty of the prisoner's dilemma is that if both people are selfish, they each just keep their $10 and only get $10. Hmm. Whereas if both people are cooperative, they both give up their $10 to give the other person 20 and that means they both earn 20 hmm. 
So when yeah. both people cooperate, they do better when both than when both people are selfish. So how does this get into the fact that I'm walking down the street and some people are jerks and some people are nice? Right. Well, so the issue is that although um, both people are better off when they cooperate than if both are selfish, no matter what the other person does, you always do better by being selfish because say they give you their $20, say they give, you know, they give you their money, so you get $20 from them, uh, if you're also cooperative, then you only get that $20. But if you're selfish, you get the $20 from the other person plus the $10 that you decided to keep. And so it has this tension where you're collectively better off if both people cooperate, but no matter what the other person does, you always earn more by being selfish. Mm. And so the question is, what determines who are the people that are willing to cooperate and who are the people that act selfishly? And this maps on to all kinds of real-world situations where... You know, uh, if everyone behaves well, it makes everyone better off, but there's always a temptation to, uh, you know, to be selfish or free ride on the good behavior of others. Yeah. Um, and so the idea in our study was that, um, so in, in, a, in a situation where there are no future consequences, like interactions with strangers, then it's the case that being selfish, you know, is what pays off. Right. But uh, in the context of uh, ongoing relationships, sort of what we call repeated interactions, then it actually can be in your long-run self-interest to be cooperative. Because if I'm a jerk to you today, that means that you are more likely to be a jerk to me tomorrow. Or vice versa, if I'm willing to cooperate with you today, you'll be more likely to cooperate with me tomorrow. So in, in our long-term relationships, it makes more sense and in games theory to cooperate, cooperate, cooperate. If it's a short-term, one-time event, we're more we, – I guess we're more likely or it's it, – that doesn't mean we're more likely to do it that way, right? We could still cooperate even in short-term, one-off events. Right. So this is the difference between uh, game theory and the experiments where game theory is sort of saying what you should do if you are trying to maximize your payoff, basically. And then we have the experiments to see what people actually do. Hmm. So what game theory says, you know, sort of quote-unquote makes sense is to cooperate in repeated interactions, but to be selfish in, you know, short-term, one-off kind of interactions. So, yeah, what... People play experiments. When you have people actually do these kinds of games in in the labs, they come into the lab and we give them money and they choose whether to keep it or give it to the other person. What you see is that people are much more cooperative in repeated interactions than in one-off interactions. And I think if you think about real life, you'll see the same thing there, where it's like um, you... I mean, also, often people are helpful to strangers, but, like, the, uh, the 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 push to be helpful and cooperative with your friends and your coworkers is much stronger. Hmm. That's and and that's bearing out then. So um, I guess it's it's kind of natural for us to try to be cooperative, but if it's going to be a long term relationship, we are much more likely to to focus that way. Right. And so a lot of the contribution of our uh, our sort of recent work on this is to is to try to understand from a sort of game theory perspective why it is that we 
care about helping strangers. That is, it's clear that, like you said, people will often help strangers, and it really feels right. Like, it feels wrong to take advantage of people, even if there's not going to be any future consequences, right? Like, you're a good person, it just feels wrong. And so we want to understand, like, where does that come from? And the argument that I have been making, and I'll tell you about several different kinds of evidence that support it, but my argument is that because most of our interactions are long-term repeated interactions where it's a good idea, that is where it actually is in your self-interest to cooperate. Because it's typically in your self-interest to cooperate, we wind up internalizing cooperating as our sort of basic default way of being. Hmm. And so when we find ourselves in a one-shot anonymous situation or one of these sort of short-term things, you know, some helping some stranger in in the grocery store, our first impulse is to feel like, oh, we should cooperate because cooperating is what usually works well. Yeah. But if you stop and think about it, you might realize, oh, actually, this is a situation that's different from normal. Here, there's not going to actually be any future benefit to helping this person. And eh, maybe I'll just go ahead and not do it. Oh, interesting. And we have a ton of experiments. I actually have a paper out today in psychological science, um, which is a meta-analysis of 51 experiments and more than 15,000 subjects from all over the world um, showing that uh, in these experiments where we give money and it's a sort of one-shot situation, you have money, you can either keep it or you can uh, give some up to cooperate with an anonymous stranger, people's first response is to cooperate. But if you make them think more carefully about it, um, they actually wind up getting more selfish. It's interesting because um, we're not thinking about it. We're doing it naturally. So sometimes – but I guess in the end, I'm always – I'm not interacting – okay, this is going to sound weird. I'm not always interacting with someone else, but sometimes I'm interacting with me, my own psyche, right? My own sense uh-huh. of what's right or wrong. So – but doing games theory would make me actually think, should I be charitable here? It's a one-off event. No, I, it wouldn't advantage me. But also simultaneously, I could see, um, what about a situation where it's a salesman at your door? It's a one-off event. I'm never going to see this guy again. I should say no, but because I'm a nice guy, I might try to yeah. cooperate with him. It's a great example, right? Where like you should just say no. Just say no. It feels bad to, because it feels like, you're used to interacting with people where it would be rude to say, no, go away. Right. Like, you let the guy in. Um, and that's exactly the kind of situation that I'm thinking about here, where you have this impulse to be nice, uh, even in situations where it, you know, sort of doesn't make sense. Right. It's, it's almost, um, yeah, it's to your, yeah, it's to your deficit. Right. Huh. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, I think that a lot of people... Uh, if you ask people, is your first impulse to be uh, cooperative and then thinking carefully about things makes you selfish, or is it that your first impulse is to be selfish and the way you get yourself to do the right thing is by thinking carefully about it, most people think it's the latter. Mm. think that we're sort of like selfish animals, basically, and then we use thinking and our sort of rationality to make ourselves do the right thing. Um, But our data very clearly uh, suggests that it's the opposite, which is, again, also what you would think about from this kind of uh, theoretical or uh, perspective that says, you know, if you want to think about one of these questions, I think 
that is what is our um, what is our default? Is our default to be cooperative or is our default to be selfish? Uh, people have just some kind of mm. general impressions, but the way I try and approach this is to think about like what are defaults, what are our intuitions, like where do they come from, and what would it make sense for them to be? Yeah. Um, and the idea from a lot of cognitive psychology is that the things that we uh, adopt as our default responses, and this isn't sort of consciously thinking about it, but through some kind of intuitive processes, the thing that we develop as our sort of default intuitions, they're like rules of thumb for behaviors that typically work well. And when you think about it that way, then it makes a lot of sense that cooperating should be a rule of thumb uh, because that's what typically works well. And, and um, boy, this is interesting because it also, I guess, this could get into your morality, right? This could get into – this is into all of your decision-making. Yeah, for sure. And so this, my sort of argument is that uh, this is where a lot of morality comes from, that the way you sort of develop the, the, the sort of basic underlying – features of your morality are these kinds of rules of thumb for what typically works well in, in social interaction. Like we hmm. think about the golden rule, Yeah. right? The golden rule, if, if you're talking about a stranger, that seems very nice and altruistic. But if you're talking about your ongoing relationships, the golden rule is just good sense. Yeah. But, but a stranger, um, but see, I guess that's where uh, this is because there, then there's this battle with my mind thinking, well, I, I need to be nice. I mean, I guess you can be nice and turn away a salesman. So it's not an either or. But uh, that we're, this might be then why we get taken advantage of. This is this is the rationale why we – some people constantly get taken advantage of. It's true. That the, right. So so Because so they don't distinguish. Of, right. Exactly. It's a really good point. That the, so the, the idea – with the rule of thumb, is that having a rule of thumb to cooperate can be a really good, useful thing mm-hmm. because uh, it usually gets you to the right answer and it sort of saves time and cognitive effort. You don't have to clearly stop and think and calculate through every time what makes sense. You just kind of go with your rule of thumb. But if you're too willing to go with the rule of thumb, then you can get exploited. And so one of the things that we get out of the game theory model is uh, you can sort of do this calculation that says, yes, there is an optimal strategy which has a, a rule of thumb to cooperate, and then it uses that rule of thumb in situations where the potential costs are low. But if you're in a situation where there's a, a big potential cost of cooperating when you shouldn't, then you're sort of more likely to stop and think about it and be like, hey, maybe I should be careful here. Yeah. Which yeah, which would lead you. I mean, so it's it's just differentiating long term versus short term, and and I guess your goals, right? I mean, my I don't want to give everything away long term for a short term gain. Hmm. Fascinating. Right. You know, Dave, let's right. let's take a break. Sorry to interrupt you. Let's take a break, oh, and, and and we'll come back. And I and I want you to continue to teach us about um, kind of the research behind it. Also, what sets us up? Are some of us are some of us set up to just automatically not go cooperative, just to be the jerk, always compete? And is, does any of that have to do with how we were raised? Stick with us, folks. We're going to continue the discussion with uh, Professor uh, Dave Rand from Yale University, giving us the latest and greatest on some of his research about uh, why some are jerks and why some are nice. Stick with us. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, your coach here, your guide on the side, and what we're trying to do today, we're working with Dr. Dave Rand, uh, who is a professor, associate professor of psychology, economics, and management at Yale University. He's also a member of the Yale Institute for Network Science and the Institution for Social and Policy Studies. And he's been walking us through one of his latest studies about why some people are jerks, yet others are nice, even to strangers. And apparently it comes down to, you know, our, the, our kind of our operating paradigm, the way we think. Do we, do we, are we a cooperative person that thinks by cooperating it's, it's going to be more advantageous to us? Do we think that we need to compete in every situation? Uh, Dr. Rand, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. This is um, to me. This is so fascinating because we don't we don't think about it, you know, long term, short term, cognitively. It doesn't seem like we just kind of we just kind of wing it with people. Is that is that kind of how we end up playing the game in game theory? I mean, in your theories, I mean, in your process, you're you actually are having them play a game, but in real life, we're just winging it. Right, and and I think that uh, a, much of the time people are just winging it. Sometimes I think people do stop and think about it, and and what our work suggests is that for most people, when you just wing it, you go with the thing that typically works well, mm. and for most people, uh, that's cooperating. Yeah. You might then stop and think about it and realize, oh, actually, here's a situation where, you know, like with your salesman example, like you might feel when a salesman comes and knocks on your door, you feel an impulse to like let the person in and then have a whole conversation with them or when a telemarketer calls you on the phone. But then you might sort of stop and think and override that and be like, no, I don't want to waste my time. Honestly, I don't want to waste their time either if I know I'm not going to buy it and just say, sorry, thanks. Yeah. Um, and, but but the, the key or a key part of this idea that what your sort of default way of being is is determined by what typically works well for you is that it's going to vary across people. I think for a lot of people, uh, I would argue for most people, at least living in the U.S., it is typically in your long run interest to be cooperative. And so it makes sure that so it makes sense that when you wing it, you wind up cooperating. But if you uh, say live in a uh, an area where there's not good rule of law, think there's a lot of crime, things aren't safe, you feel like you can't trust strangers, mm. then it might not be the case that it's a good idea in general to be cooperating. Or if you work in a company that really re- uh, rewards uh, backstabbing and sort of ladder climbing and doesn't create, sort of foster a culture of cooperativeness, then you might wind up uh, sort of switching your default to be selfishness interesting rewarded and, and selfishness could just be self-preservation right right, right I mean, exactly because maybe exactly. that's what we're seeing with with some of the things going on just culturally in the united states with certain populations that don't feel safe to be pulled over that don't feel safe to you know be questioned by police i mean it might just create a tension of not not wanting to cooperate just to self-protect Right. I mean, I think that in, in a situation where most of your interactions with a particular type of person are interactions uh, where uh, basically you feel wronged, 
then it makes a lot of sense that you're going to develop a baseline way of being of saying, I don't trust that type of person. Right. I don't want to interact with them. And then it may be that you can use sort of uh, what we call it's deliberation, sort of careful thinking to, in certain situations, be like, no, actually, here, let me override that. This is a particular, you know, even though in general I don't trust a certain kind of person, this particular person I do or this particular situation I do hmm. or something like that. But it makes sense that your sort of default responses are going to reflect your prior, your past experience. Yeah. How, how, and where, I mean, that's interesting how you brought it up culturally. Yeah. If you've lived in a country where you're constantly fighting for every thing that you need and you can't trust anybody, then man, it would be hard to move into a cooperative system. Right. Does, right. so I guess that too depends to how we're raised, right? Are some people raised more um, just more to be less cooperative. Um, yeah, so I it, I don't have uh, I don't have that much uh, real sort of empirical evidence of this, but I certainly what my theory would argue is that the way that you're raised is quite important for this, and we're currently running experiments with kids um, in a bunch of different countries to look at how uh, the sort of cooperativeness changes over the course of being raised as a function of, you know, the, the sort of culture that you're growing up in. Hmm. Um, but I, I definitely think that the, in the same way that, uh, for example, a company that rewards selfishness uh, will sort of lead to people developing that as their default, if your parents are always teaching you, don't be a sucker like, don't help other people. You've got to look out for yourself. It makes Man. a lot of sense that that's the thing that you're going to wind up internalizing yeah. as, your, as your default. It's also interesting because this is a dynamic that's going on real time. So I'm talking to somebody and I might be starting in a cooperative mentality, but as soon as I sense selfishness, I might then switch to selfish and then this thing can deteriorate quickly. Right, totally. And that's actually something that makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense from the perspective of this, uh, you know, sort of automatic response is the good rule of thumb, because it's not that cooperating period is that say in, in the context of long-term interactions, long, long-term relationships, it's not that just always cooperating is the, is the right strategy, because you also don't want to get exploited. The sort of best strategy is to start by cooperating and then cooperate if the other person is being cooperative. But if the other person is sufficiently selfish, then you should also switch to not helping them hmm. um, to protect yourself. And so there's also a lot of evidence that in the same way that cooperating in these sort of one-off interactions is intuitive, it's also intuitive if someone does a bad thing to you, like if someone exploits you, it's intuitive to retaliate. Yeah. It seems like... That that's where there could be really egregious uh, pe um, situations where I where I'm not adapting to what's going on. I stay cooperative when they continually keep aggressively, selfishly dominating. Then I then I then I'm setting myself up to become a victim. Right. Hmm. Right. You got to protect yourself. Yeah. Now it's interesting, and um, and then. But, for example, I just – this is crazy timing, but I just watched Gandhi 
the movie. I don't know if you've seen it uh-huh. from many, many moons ago. But one of the things that was so telling to me is his peaceful resistance uh, going head to head with a with a selfish person. He said, "They said, so what happens if we peacefully resist and they hurt us?" Then he said, "Well, peacefully resist still and." You'll take a few lumps, but after you take a few lumps, you might you would probably convert the average person into realizing they ought to cooperate. But it, it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Because it's like, how many punches do I need to take before this guy's going to start cooperating? And they may not. I, I, yeah, and we've we've talked a lot about nonviolence in my lab, and I think it's a really interesting uh, thing because. As you phrased it there, which is exactly right, it's it's a strategy. Yeah, it's not it's not something so much where it's like do this on basic moral principles, but rather it's like this is an effective way of in the long run changing other people's behavior. And I think that part of it maybe is that it's so surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it sort of really challenges your basic ways of thinking, look, I just keep hitting this person and they're not doing anything like what's going on. And it sort of shakes people up more than it would be if you did the expected thing of mm. retaliating. Right. And I guess that, that one of the things he would hope that that would do would shift, you know, shift the, the, the cultures and the societies that see that as unjust. But yeah. if, you, if you're in a culture that doesn't see that as unjust, just keep taking it from them. <laughs> just keep taking it, then this never would have shifted. But there were cultures, and I guess that's what Gandhi knew, is there are cultures of goodness that are just that, that are going to operate out of cooperation more than self-interest. Hmm. Yep, and I think a lot, of, a lot of our work is aimed at understanding how can you organize things in a way to promote the cultures of cooperation. I love um, it. The context that I most often think of it is in terms of... Um, companies and sort of organizations because there it's easier for you know a relatively small number of people to change the way things are set up and you know build a yeah. culture within an organization but the same principles apply at the country level um, you know it's just harder to make changes there no it totally is well uh, dr david rand we appreciate you and can't uh, recommend more everybody go check out the website david rand cooperation.com DavidRand-Cooperation.com. Fascinating site there. Also, just great visuals to help you understand what we've been talking about. And we appreciate you, Dr. Rand. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's crazy. Every once in a while, I think we all just need to go take a break and go... I don't know why I did it, but it just, I guess it came natural. But I went, and when I was off on my vacation... I went to uh, the Reagan Museum, Presidential Museum. I also, for some odd reason, chose of all movies to watch a three-and-a-half-hour movie of Gandhi. I watched. And, well, it took like a day because <laughs> I kept being interrupted. But anyway, what I learned um, 
we we've we this is your life folks this is your world this is this is up to you and um well like we just learned from dr rand we all have techniques we all have you know policies we all have paradigms that we're going to govern our govern our lives by and and you have to decide what yours is and it doesn't have to be absolute i mean it doesn't have to be that you are always um charitable to the person kicking you in the teeth, but it, you might need to be charitable to yourself. So the principle, I think, can work. It just may not work the way you think it's going to work. Um, so be open and willing to, to look deeper into your principles, into your beliefs. One of the reasons I, I was um, taken aback is because to see the parallel of a Ronald Reagan who kind of knew that he deep in his heart had this belief that he was going to impact people. And he wanted to impact people um, for good. And then combine that with a Gandhi who had this principle-centered way of, of seeing life that no matter what, you're going to do the hard thing and you just do it. And you don't do it because it's easy. You do it because it's hard and you do it. Um, I also at the, at the Ronald Reagan Museum, they, they had a, a, a show going on that was from the Vatican as well. And I saw a wonderful uh, painting of Mother Teresa – and Pope John Paul that I thought, oh, what a beautiful setting that was. And, and this, this painting was incredible. But here's a quote that, again, goes back to Mother Teresa. Um, and it's just a basic, it's a basic concept. People are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity, happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So let's just do what's right and just do it because it's right and trust the principles to deliver the results we need. Do it anyway. It's always between you and God anyway, right? We'll take a break. Come back. We've got a whole other hour. We're going to be talking parenting. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. (laughs) 